Memoirs of a Karate Fighter by Ralph Robb Swept along by the kung fu craze of the 1970s, as well as the threat of violence from his older cousins and racist thugs, the teenage Ralph Robb joins one of the most successful and toughest karate schools in Britain. Although he grows up in a comfortable and loving home in middle-class area of Wolverhampton, England, Ralph strikes out for independence and moves to a flat in a high-rise tower block where a gang of National Front-supporting skinheads are in residence. In this coming-of-age tale, Ralph tells it how it was for a young black boy as he gradually matures into adulthood in a town where, back in the 1980s, casual racism and violence were all too common. Together with his cousin and best friend Clinton, he trains diligently and is selected to represent Britain at the Under-21 European Karate Championship. But as the jingoism grows to fever pitch in the throes of the Falklands War, Ralph finds himself conflicted. He wants to compete at an international level, but he does not want to wear the emblem of the Union Jack, which has become, for him, a symbol of intolerance. Ralph does win a silver medal, but his aspirations as an international competitor are curtailed when he has to take on work as a nightclub doorman to earn extra money so he can make a deposit for a home for him and his new family. But this is not his only concern. His training partner, Clinton, begins to exhibit behavior that would eventually require him to be sectioned under the Mental Health Act. After extremely rough justice is meted out to a notorious gang of football hooligans by members of the karate club following an unprovoked attack on one of Ralph's younger cousins and the fights he witnesses at the doors of the various nightclubs, he begins to question the direction in which his life is heading, as well as his own attitudes towards violence. The more he is able to fight, the less inclined he is to do so, and Ralph decides to take another course one which will lead him to higher qualifications as an engineer and a role in management at the factory in which he had served as an apprentice. Following several years as Britain's top team, the karate club begins its slide into decline and members start to fall away. But they do meet up for one last time at the funeral of Clinton following his suicide at the age of 23. The death of his longtime friend brings out another period of introspection, which will lead Ralph to leave karate and Wolverhampton behind for a new life in Canada with his wife and children. Hi, I'm Steve Byfield. Welcome to the Memoirs of Karate Fighter podcast. I'm here with author Ralph Robb, who wrote Memoirs of a Karate Fighter, and Donald Blaney, who was the original publisher of the book following a publishing career going back 20 years as well as being a member of the YMCA team. I just wanted to briefly outline my training background for listeners. I've been training for nearly 50 years, starting with judo age 10, and I'm an old boy of the Suzuki schools of karate at the Hombu, or headquarters dojo, at Manor Place Bars and Marvick House in London. I started training in the children's class at Manor Place with Jumano Ohomzi, age 12, in 1972, showed promise and was allowed to join the adult class age 13. The normal minimum age was 16. At Manor Place, I trained with the following sensei, Shinohara, Kubo, Yamanashi, Hamaguchi, Kobayashi, Maeda, Kitamura, Wakamei, Sakagami, Shiomitz, Nishimura, and Suzuki. Also, I started training with Suzuki sensei in Battersea Park age 13. This continued for several years. Later, the Hombu Dojo moved to Marvick House in Fulham, where I trained and taught children and adult beginners with Suzuki-sensei and Sugazawa-sensei. I wasn't really into competition, preferring the freedom of free fighting. 
but did win a few junior competitions and was a member of the UKKW Great Britain squad for kata and committee and have represented England. I still train daily, so that's my stall set out. Now, we've been working together on the More Than A Game podcast, which you can find by going to ralphrob.com. We have shared a dojo together, and let's start from the beginning. Ralph, can you give me some background regarding how your parents arrived in Wolverhampton? Well, both my parents emigrated to England, Wolverhampton to be more precise, in the late 1950s. Both, again, from very rural areas of uh, Jamaica. So you could well imagine that coming to England is be a stark uh, difference to where they came from, in particular, the cold. Speaking of the cold, I always remember this one occasion, right, when my mom, her first encountered frost, having her clothes on a clothesline for overnight, and she said because somebody's touched her clothing. Grew up in Wolverhampton, settled in an area which was mainly... Uh, populated with people from my parents' background and also people from the Indian subcontinent. Life in the early age, my early age, was rough, but because everybody in that same area of town were also in the same kind of a boat, it was normal. It was just average. So you didn't think yourself of being uh, downtrodden or anything of that field because we were all in the same boat. I remember recently walking my dad, driving with my dad, and he took me to an area of uh, Wolverhampton where he originally settled when he came in from Jamaica. He pinpointed the house, which him and several other guys lived in. There was about 10, 15 guys at the time. I don't know how they all fit in that house, but they did, because at the time, as you well know, uh, very reluctant for landowners to, to give or to rent space to immigrants. Now, Steve... I'm pretty sure that you or your parents, right, went to similar circumstances such as this, correct? Yes, I know many black people did. My parents came to London and I heard the stories about the no blacks, no Irish, no dog signs. I'm mixed race and my mum told me stories of walking up to houses with, with to let signs in the window when she had my oldest brother with her in the pram. They would tell her to come in, look in the pram, then tell her the house suddenly wasn't available. Yeah. Uh, Donald, how did you arrive in Wolverhampton? Uh, well, it's my parents, you know, that, that's about, they met there and they married there. Right. And uh, yeah, we uh, we had a kind of very childhood. A lot of our childhood was spent in Ireland at first, but then we, we moved to a place in Wolverhampton called Low Hill. Okay. And uh, it attracted some notoriety. And, uh, but I, I think um, we were the only non-English family in the street for a good while. So, um, it was strange. There was, um, at the time, you were never aware growing up of hostility as such. You just think if kids want to fight you, it's because they don't like you. You, don't, you never put it down to any particular reason. Until one day, I was about eight or nine. This lad I knew quite well, and I, I thought of him as a friend, used the term Irish bee. And, uh, and I kind of looked, and he said, oh, not you, Dan. Now you're all right. And I thought, what, what does he mean? Well, I'm all right, not me, you know, and I got in a little bit of a panic over that. But um, it was, I suppose not dissimilar to Ralph because I think I was about um, 22 till I lived in a house with an inside bathroom. And Low Hill, unfortunately, gained a kind of notoriety for gang violence. But yeah. you should mention Low Hill and the Scotlands. When I was growing up in my early teens in such, such a time period, those are two areas, right, which we did not go because it had such a reputation of being so uh, anti-black at the time. 
We just didn't go there. It was just off limits. To go there would mean that we'd have to be on guard all the time and that you'd possibly get beaten up for, as you said, having the audacity to walk down the street. Oh, yeah. But, you know, you read in your book, and the line's so true, often it wasn't about colour in many cases. It's about territory. It's about territory, gang, little gangs. Oh, yeah. Because there's something messed up with the human nature when you think that this area is ours. Anybody else coming into it, right, you've got to f*** them up, you know? Can you give me an idea of the kind of scrapes that you got into... At, at that young age, pre-training? I was bullied tremendously at school. I was bullied. I used to bully. It was normal. It was natural. It was a way of trying to form a pecking order. But some of it wasn't just through uh, guys picking on you. Some of it was through my cousins who were a bit older than me. They right. would arrange fights for me to take part in. Get a guy from the district. They bring him down. They create a circle with clothes or whatever. They would actually lay money on the grass to who's going to win. And you had to fight. Now, okay. I could fight, but I didn't like fighting. Okay, I just did not like the confrontation of uh, the emotional confrontation of fighting on the streets. This is what I was going to do. But if I didn't take part, my own cousin was going to beat my ass for not fighting. So you, had you, to... you must have had a certain ability for them to put you forward for such contests. I didn't like it, but I had to do it. I remember this one occasion, did my level best to try and beat this kid. His kid, his abilities, right, were roughly the same as mine, and I couldn't get the better of him, and he couldn't get the better of me. So it was classed as a draw. Now, to my cousin, right, this was akin to be to losing, and they were vexed because nobody made any money. <laughs> so what, their punishment to me, right, was one of which they've seen in a, in a lot of these old cowboy movies with the with the Indians. They decided me. They decided to stake me out in the ground, right, spread eagle, post driven into the ground at times, yeah. and then they just left yeah. me. I was there, I'm not exaggerating, I was there for about three hours, tied in the middle of the, in the, middle of the uh, park. The only reason I was let go was because I was in the middle of a football pitch. The first day I was like five years of age, I, my mum sent me out to go have a look around, and this lad jumped out and started to threaten me. And I ran home, crying my eyes out, and sobbing, I told her what had happened. So she looked and says, come with me. And she, she put me, and there was the old scallywag standing there with his hands on his hips, you know, defiant. And my mom said, do you attack my son? And he just stood there. So she grabs hold of him and says to me, hit him. And I go, I'm still crying. And I, I give her a, a kind of weak little tap. And she says, hit him. So I didn't dare defend my mother. So I, I punched him in the face. Mm. And she, what she was doing, by the way, the, the lad's mother uh, stuck her head out the window and said, hey, what are you doing with my son? <laughs> this is our first day on Low Hill. So it kind of escalated a little bit. But I think what my mom was saying is, look, you can't be running to your mommy when people are attacking you. You're going to have to learn to stick up for yourself. Okay. And uh, strangely, when I uh, joined the YMCA, uh, I took a few shellackings in the first few months. And I was covered. One day she saw me changing a shirt and I was black and blue. And she says, I hope you're going back and hitting those fellas. But uh, I, I joined a, a judo club. I, we could get in fights every week. No, no problem. And me and my brothers did get in some, you know, fairly serious fights. So I went to learn judo at the local uh, library. And it was run by two fellas who were black belts in judo, but also there were green belts with Toro Takamizawa, the karate teacher. All right. And we'd all heard about karate. And we were promised, if you pass your first grade in judo, 
we, we taught karate. Well, we always remember the demo because they had their judo black belt song and they, they did their judo techniques and then they took them off and put on green belts and then st- started to do karate. We looked, looked far more interesting to us. And then they broke a piece of wood, which we thought was like magic. Yeah, I was, mm-hmm. I was about 12 years of age at the time. From there, after a few months of the judo, we were taught karate, but only the basics. It was too dangerous for children to do, we were told. Yeah. Uh, so we were allowed to just go up and down the hall. And certainly to Kamazawa, uh, he's clubbing all the Hampton. He didn't allow anybody under 16. A blast of land of hope and glory from two large speaker horns on the car's roof startled me and turned my head. A call of England for the English, repatriate now, accompanied the music. I stopped in the road and glared at the man in the passenger seat who held the microphone answer. At first, he smirked, but it soon gave way to a grimace. Staring at him, I experienced a similar hatred to the one I had previously felt for the skinhead leaving the lift. But now there were no boxes in my hand to prevent me from acting. I turned and spat onto the car's bonnet. The two men in the car made nervous smiles as I trembled with anger. I made to rush the car's door to rip it open, but a strong hand grabbed me by the shoulder and dragged me back. The car sped off and my elderly neighbour asked, Are you a special kind of stupid? Can you not see that they are taunting you to get you to react? I've seen it all before with the Nazis. Nothing changes. We're still in your younger days and you describe the violent nature of your community throughout the book and how you reacted to it, including the growing awareness of a racist aspect. You were both living in the constituency of Enoch Powell MP and he delivered his Rivers of Blood speech on April the 20th, 1968. Can you remember anything about that? At the time, I didn't really care. I didn't have the mental capacity to take it all in. But what I did notice after that particular speech, it was how my uh, parents changed. For instance, they wouldn't allow me out at certain times or at certain times on the weekend, even if it was daylight, because they referred back to the speech in a parliament and the way it was going to cause or uh, skinheads at the time to think and yes. to embolden them. So my parents didn't want me out in certain areas or out at certain times when these kids or young men would be driving around looking for a young black guy to beat up. Later on in life, right, that was one of the reasons why I took up karate. Not the sole reason, but one of them. I just got fed up of being chased all the time to be beaten on. And often, right, when you were chased, you were chased by, I'm talking about later on now, you weren't chased by little kids, people you saw on age or kids. You were chased by grown-ass men in cars looking at the end of a football match, end of a Saturday evening, for somebody to beat up. And if you fit that description, right, you're going to get a beating. Luckily, I was pretty fast on my feet, and I knew the area very well. I knew which alley to dodge down, which uh, garden to fence to jump over, which would lead to another fence where I could escape through via another game. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. essential but to know that. Know that. Yeah. Caught me. But the fact that I was constantly running or had to be... I had to be on my awareness of people wanting to hurt me for the simple colour. Diff- for the simple reason I'm a different colour. I stuck in my mind. And that uh, actually brought back to Enoch Powell. Yeah. Well, I have memories of people shouting things related to Enoch Powell. Yeah, I remember that as well. Because we didn't live in the town centre and you kind of avoided that. But, you, you know, even as Irish people, we knew Enoch Powell wasn't our friend. In fact, when he left Wolverhampton, he would then join the Ulster Unionists. Yes, yes, 75, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think what was a worrying thing for a lot, and 
I want to say right off, there's a lot of wonderful people in Wolverhampton. Oh, of course, of course. Who, I know. I know. who hated everything he stood for. I'll put you back to it, right? Although the, the areas that you're talking of in Wolverhampton, right, uh, you, you don't have the uh, control the conclusion of the whole of Wolverhampton like that. There's only a small, isolated area. You could go, you could travel 10 minutes in any in any direction of these areas, and you'd think you're in a different world where the violence did not occur. You did not have mm. to. You did not have the uh, the same. Only that happened after school, etc. The thing about it is, everybody was aware, and I think his legacy, it stained Wolverhampton, his reputation for years after. And oh, I know yes. people who were in the council who were so aware of the reputation that man had given Wolverhampton as one of a, a place of intolerance. And really, the truth is, there was a segment that what, one of the reasons the National Front never won even the council seat was because. They didn't have to. But those who supported the National Front voted for the power. Outside of real fights, the gang's free time was occupied with the fantasy fighting of kung fu movies. Errol Clinton and I spent our Friday and Saturday nights at the Coliseum Cinema, where the audience would be 99% male and 100% black and boisterous. Kung fu movies were all the craze when we were teenagers and the rat-infested cinema was always packed for its late-night weekend shows. The atmosphere in the Coliseum was always very different to what I would find at the cinemas in the town centre, as there were always plenty of people in the audience who were willing to supply a running commentary on the action. Of all the kung fu stars, Wang Yu was the favourite at the Coliseum. But why kung fu movies and why Wang? For black guys of my age, the badly scripted, poorly dubbed Cantonese films were a cheap escape from the grind of daily life. Their carefully choreographed fight scenes acted as a release for people who were otherwise preoccupied with thoughts of real violence. It was easy to fantasize about thrashing either the cops who hassled us or the thugs who attacked us, as simply as Wang dispatched his foes. As for Wang Yu himself, his popularity was in part due to his name. It had not been corrupted with a Bruce or a Jackie, from which we surmised that he had not sold out, which back then was a significant phrase for a young black people. But this turned out not to be strictly true, and as Wang's popularity grew, his name became Jimmy Wang Yu. But this uncomfortable truth was not allowed to get in the way of unalloyed hero worship. Also, his fighting style was admired, as it was more traditional than Lee's, and less clowning than Chan's. And lastly, in his films, there were only Chinese people. And so we were transported to another world in which the hero wasn't always a white man. And it was the Japanese rather than black men who were the stereotypical bad guys. Hey, what do you want? Mr. Suzuki, isn't he your chief? Powell was busy saying division, skinhead hooligans were chasing you around the streets, then kung fu movies made an appearance. Did they influence you at all? In a big way, actually. Uh, prior to that, right, uh, my, probably my first heroes were probably soccer players or boxers, you know? And then came along the kung fu movies, which put everything in a total different light. There was uh, characters in those movies that you could actually relate to, even though they're not the same ethnicity as you. The persecution you often seen between the Japanese and the Chinese, you could relate to. So yes. you automatically, right, you became, they became your heroes via, you know, through uh, association, so to speak. 
Yes. But I remember, even at that age, I was still too young to go and see a lot of these Kung Fu movies. But I was able to sneak into certain theatres. We had a little gang right? we used to, who we used to go around and we became masters at sneaking into movie theatres. Now, one guy uh, pays money to watch some Disney flick or something. He would go in whilst the rest of us would wait outside by the emergency exit. And halfway through the movie, right, he'd, he'd shut down, open the door, let us in. From there, we could go into another theatre and watch whatever we wanted to watch. It was our little plan. And it worked quite well. But during the comfort era, Bruce Lee and et cetera, et cetera, we couldn't do that because they became, they became wise in what we were up to and they locked that down so that no one could sneak in. When they became aware of the uh, people who were trying to sneak in and very often these theatres right, would be full to capacity. They'd sold out so they didn't have room for anybody else. So they started to put proper security on the door, stop you from gaining. Do you remember the atmosphere at those movies? I used to go to the Peckham Odeon and Brixton ABC and watch the films through a thick haze of smoke, and it wasn't old Alban either. We'd come outside and act out scenes from the films, and some of those games turned into real fights. I developed a fairly seasoned roundhouse kick long before I went to a dojo. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that the same thing happened in Wolverhampton as well at the Coliseum. There was no way, as you walk through the main entrance to get into the theatre, there was nowhere to buy food as such. But there's two guys standing on either side of the door with bags selling ganja, you know, <laughs> by, the, by the handful. Okay, you want it. <laughs> yeah. Traditional yeah. 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 right, the age, I was way too young for that. And, <laughs> and right, trade yeah. with all the cousins smoking this frowned upon, so we didn't, we didn't even dare dwell. Smoking okay. weed. Yeah. No, I got used to the uh, Coliseum a couple of times. I, I went there. I can't remember who I went there with, but um, the crowd participation, the audience participation was immense. And um, yeah. oh, the, yes. the, what they were showing, I think yeah. it was called, oh, yeah. it was the, the big boss told his teacher, promised his teacher not to fight. So, of course, you got half the film where Bruce is not fighting despite all sorts of provocation. And this yes. was too much for some of the audience. They were literally jumping up and down the aisle, screaming at the screen to yeah. for Bruce to, I think the phrase was, lick him, lick him Bruce, <laughs> I think was the phrase. See, but there's a direct uh, example of the kind of things that, that we were experiencing every day with the name calling and the, and the racist abuse. And oh, you, you'd have to walk yeah, away oh, from yeah, it oh, yeah. we we must identify That's, with that yeah but you know you should yes. you, you should say that right because we were, you, we're speaking as though it only affected uh black people from england as such right but i was recently watching a youtube uh, video regarding uh the old wu-tang clan okay yeah, and our kung fu movies of that era right the era we're talking about influenced movie theaters in new york in particular exactly the same way as it did in england down to the way the crowd was actually cheering and booing and wanted to get involved into the movies exactly the same way One of the secrets of the YMCA's success was the manner in which the students were taught how to apply the techniques they learned while moving up and down the hall in lines. In traditional Waduru Karate, there are a number of graduated sequences of prearranged fighting techniques that Hironori Otsuka had devised. Yakusoku, or sometimes called Kiyongamite, involves an attacker and defender in a series of techniques which teaches the basic principles of Wado. Irimi entering. Kawashi avoiding, Nogari escaping, Nagashi sweeping away, and Taisabaki body control. 
Many similar techniques and footwork are found in other martial arts, such as kendo and aikido, and I had witnessed some of those principles put into devastating effect when Jerome had disarmed the huge man with the knife. Tatsuo Suzuki then developed Oyogamite, semi-free fighting, in which the techniques are more like actual fighting, but again, both attack and defense are prearranged. Eddie Cox and his fellow senseis developed this further, with several forms of sparring in which sometimes the attacks were prearranged, but the methods of defense could be a choice of two or three techniques, a prearranged attack to be countered with any technique or the defender's choice, and then the free exchange of techniques in a controlled fashion that was called slow sparring. Slow sparring involved the execution of techniques at less than full speed, but this was something of a misnomer when practiced by the senior grades. To the untrained eye, it still can look very fast when performed by black belts as their eyes and reactions have become so attuned to the movements of the karateka in front of them. And how did you get into organized karate training? I didn't have any friends who actually did karate, but I had a lot of cousins who did karate. And we wouldn't train outside of the gym because I'd seen the way they were kicking. I thought, I ain't getting mixed up with that. They're going to hit me with one of those kicks. They all did karate. They would all go out on a twice a week doing this karate, which I knew a little bit about by watching their kung fu movies. The uh, protection side of it by uh, being chased as a kid, that was secondary. First thing, I wanted to be part of the activities my cousins were doing. Right. Yeah, both my brothers uh, trained in karate and, and both of my older sisters. Track and field was probably my first love, my second love after soccer. That was before karate came around. But once I started karate itself, everything else took a second place. It had me, it had me hooked. First time at the club, but did I think of it? Extremely intimidating, extremely. Now, I also found it, you might find it uh, strange. I found it boring the initial classes because it was all it was all down to the basics, all down to how to make a proper fist, all down to my stance or my form, which I was constantly messing up, I was constantly being corrected on. All down to you have to know the body's divided into sections which you know about Steve Jordan, Chudan, Kidan. All that was still all over again. But as time progressed and you started, you're allowed to uh, do a little bit of self-defense with the older students or the more advanced students. You began to understand whilst you were there or what you were there for. But initially, the uh, drills up and down, I found them boring, but you had to do yeah, them. I mean, it's interesting, and I'm glad to hear you had to do them. You know, we know the, the basics are the foundation. Yeah, but at that particular time, right, when you're a kid, in the gym. You want to start doing things like you see Bruce Lee do. You don't want to go through the gradient, yeah. through the basics. You yes. want to jump ahead. But if you try attempted to do that, there'd be a price to pay. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? What did you make of the etiquette, for example? I, I expected to a certain extent because you watch a lot of kung fu movies there's always that growing phase where the young the young lion has to be taught had to be put through the uh, rigmarole of the basics before it could move on so that i understood I understood the, the etiquette understood the discipline that came with the etiquette if you screw up you're going to feel pain okay. basically okay. Okay. Now, I don't know about yourself, Rob, but if we screwed up at the, the YMCA, the uh, punishment was, was kind of severe at times. I'm not just talking about the endless press-ups you'd have to do in front of the class or sit-ups. That's minor. It's if you screwed up too bad, right? You'd be called out to 
all the yeah, pad. There were consequences. And on your pad, you might think it's a protection. These guys are trying to punch a hole for you, so it's a punishment. You're taking a bit yes. behind those pads. I don't know if you uh, get to anything similar to that. Well, when I moved up to the adult class at my first dojo, Man of Place, I was a young 13-year-old lad in a class full of grown men who were some of the biggest names in karate at that time, current and future, many of whom were six foot three plus. One did have to be careful with behavior or you would pay when it came to free fighting. I had lots of respect, but did used to fear some of my instructors just because of what I'd seen them do to others and it would have been foolish and dangerous to annoy them. So my manners were always very good. As I said, the early days, my sole intention was wanted to know how to fight. The karate appeared to me immensely because he was punching. And that's what I used to do in the road, you know, as a kid fighting in the street. And I thought if you could learn to punch properly, that's a big advantage. I knew that to beat anybody, probably karate would be the way to do it. Because unfortunately now judo school, again, I was one of the smallest and youngest kids. I'd be great against somebody of my own size and age. Well, put me against a kid even only two or three years older and he'd be throwing me around the place and locking me up. And so when the uh, the judo club actually closed and it was a big disappointment, but I always wanted them to go back to, to karate, but I knew I couldn't do it till I was 16. So I, I had to wait about three years before I could enroll at the George Hotel in Wolverhampton. And it was an offshoot to the Temple Karate Club, a very famous karate club in Birmingham, which was run by Toroto Kamizawa, who was then a fifth down. And also, I think the thing about karate is it had an element of magic about it. And that was all down to the wood breaking. And of course, the way it was portrayed in films, and it had great PR because it appeared in The Man from Uncle. I think um, a very famous karate master, Kanazawa, appeared in the episode of The Saint. And so it always had this element that there was a secret to it, and you could deal death or at least put somebody out in one single blow. And of course, the people then who were enrolling, they didn't say no, that, that's not quite true. They all, they all kind of cut it as salam, yeah come to the temple sort of thing. I will teach you these secrets. And Tikamiza had an assistant instructor called Ken Dix. Oh, yes. Who did most of the teaching. He was a very good, very old school, hard karate man. And because of my basics, Tikamiza turned up and this is only our second lesson. And I had my old judo gi on and he wanted to show us how to block a kick. So we were doing far more advanced things than probably beginners would do today. And so he selected me and I was called quite proud that out of all these people, he asked me to kick him. But I made a mistake. He'd asked me, had I ever done karate before? And I thought, no, let him think I'm so good. I picked it up and I can kick like this. Of course, I've been training these kicks for three years. So he kind of looked at me, but I took no notice. So I'm throwing these kicks and he's blocking them with these. And he says, right, he says, no, I'm going to kick you. Are you scared? <laughs> I thought, I can't lie this time. I said, yes. He says, good. He says, because when you're scared, you'll learn to block. Okay. <laughs> so he threw this kick. And I look back now, and of course, he probably only kicked it half, through the kick at half speed or more. But it looked a blur to me at the time, but I got out of the way. And he did say, and he said it many times, that's why you've got to have an element of fear in your karate. And he, yeah. he made me scared that day. Yeah. Uh, and then um, after a while, because I worked at the same place as Eddie Cox, who was the instructor at the YMCA, Eddie had a reputation around the town because I was a Catholic kid and a, the aforementioned St. Joseph's was the school. And Eddie was the toughest kid in the toughest school in town. And... Uh, 
So I'd, I'd heard of Eddie Cox a long time before I'd ever met Eddie. And I ended up working at the same uh, place as he. He just qualified as an electrician. And I enrolled at the age of 15 as an apprentice. So there's about six years difference. But of course, the word was, uh, this is a crotty black belt. And we thought, just to mention a black belt, we thought that he's endowed with superpowers. And um, he, I, I'd asked him about it, and he was quite evasive. But I used to see him in the stores before the workday would begin, where electricians would pick up materials and get the jobs to do. And he finally said, oh, come up, but you, you just watch. And that was towards the end of 1974, because the Temple Karate Club, they just won the British Karate Association team title. Um, right. And they beat a very famous club called Ishin Ru in the final. Oh, yeah. And Ishin Ru had probably been the, the dominant force and continues to be that in fairness to the Ishimu club and their coach Tiki Donovan who later became British team coach they did set the bar regarding competition karate and the Temple Club from Birmingham had gone down and beaten them in London I think it was at Empire Pool Stadium and so I think Eddie was in a good mood so he said I'll oh, come up and watch so uh, he let me sit in the corner at the YMCA in Thorny Street and you took go up to a flight of stairs and the dojo was quite small and it had um, hardboard sheets nailed down there to, because the, the floorboards had been so rough and uh, towards the end of the uh, lesson there's the free fighting and a fellow that found out was Jerome Atkinson kicked this poor unfortunate in the head and laid him clean out in fact he had to get taken to hospital and I think Eddie must have seen the shock I was only about 16 maybe I just turned 17 and the, the colour must have drained from my face because he was quite an horrendous kick and he said oh he said uh, you can come back and maybe train another time but not now visit our website at www.ralphrob.com do you have questions or comments email us at ralph at ralphrob.com I'm Kimberly Ravando Rob and I am signing up, signing up. Signing up.